Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... How Mathematics Created Civilization with Michael Brooks and his new book, The Art of More. Michael Brooks is a science writer with a PhD in quantum physics and the author of several books, including the best-selling 13 Things That Don't Make Sense and the Quantum Astrologer's Handbook, which was a Daily Telegraph book of the year. And today we're going to talk about Michael's new book, which is The Art of More, How Mathematics Created Civilization. Michael, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks very much. It's great to, to be back after all this time. Tell us then, first of all, what the idea is behind The Art of More. So, I mean, the idea is really, I mean, I should explain the title, perhaps. No animal species, us included, naturally counts to more than three. After that, everything is just more. You say, oh, I've got a pile, you know, and, you know, whether it's chimps, whether it's crows, uh, whether it's fish, you know, they can do some basic counting. Like They can tell one from two, and they know two is bigger than one, and some know three is bigger than two. But after that, it's just like, oh, well, we don't have a sort of concept or a word for that. We'll just call it more. So the book is called The Art of More, because it's about what you can do once you go beyond that sort of natural ability and sort of start doing what we call mathematics and so so the book is really about you know all the things that mathematics has done for us as humans and we are the only species that actually does it and so you know we talk about you know the link of like mathematics to like the natural world and to the cosmos and to the planets and you know the orbits of the planets and, and things but of course it is a thing that we invented Rather yes, um, that, that's controversial, actually. Yeah, well, yeah. indeed, but like, it did we? I agree with you. Did we invent it? So, 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 what happened? I mean, absolutely. I think we invented it. I think mathematicians like to think that they're on some cosmic quest where they're just discovering things that are written in the cosmos. You know, it, it's almost like a, a sacred sort of feel to it. But actually, I think we just invented it. We invented counting numbers. We realized that they were useful, and we used them obviously for trade initially. Uh, and then we sort of discovered that you could, you know, see these relationships between the numbers, or you could use them for measuring space and putting numbers on lines and shapes and things like that. And so we gradually took control of our environment through this manipulation of numbers. But I think we invented numbers and we sort of, you know, because of their natural, natural characteristics, you know, we were able to do all the other branches of mathematics that come out of that. So modern human beings, modernish human beings have been around for you know, a few hundred thousand years. Yeah. But what's the sort of first evidence we have of us actually using 
numbers? It's really, really difficult and controversial. I mean, we have an artifact uh, called the Ashango bone. Uh, it was found in what is now the Congo. Um, that was, you know, that's about 10,000 years old. So relatively recent in terms of human history. And that sort of seems to have notches on it that tally with, tally with numbers that are, are some kind of counting tally and people think it might be to do with the lunar cycle but that's our sort of first evidence that you know humans were having this understanding of numbers perhaps and starting to realize that they could be useful and significant and then you know really you know the sort of evidence of of using them in trade and actually sort of putting numbers to work comes sort of you know really sort of four five thousand years ago um in ancient uh and babylonian kingdoms where people start to use clay tablets start to write down things associated with numbers and then we know you know they know what they're doing and in terms of doing sort of mental arithmetic and calculations, you know, quick calculations at sort of ancient markets and stuff, obviously one of the ways that we will all be familiar with about learning to count is using our fingers. Yeah. But like different cultures have historically had different ways of using their fingers to count. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's really interesting because um, it's one of the things that shows you that counting isn't really natural, is that it actually rides on other brain circuits that we use. So the the brain circuits that we use for controlling our fingers and and watching where they are in space and sort of knowing how to move them, those are the ones that are sort of overwritten for number use, which is why we end up counting on our fingers, or possibly we end up counting on our fingers because we can do this. So you know, various different cultures have different ways of representing the numbers on fingers, but it seems to be quite a universal way of, of calculating. And the interesting thing is, as you didn't make it into the book, I think, is that is that if you do fMRI studies, so brain scan studies on people doing mental arithmetic, then what you see is all the finger circuits are basically lighting up while they do their arithmetic. And the better you are at arithmetic, the less they light up, the less effort it is. So, so you know, that, that thing about using your fingers is very, very real. And it, you know, it maps all the way into the brain. But you know, different cultures have different ways of representing the numbers on their fingers. And some use you know, knuckle joints and some you know, are using fingers and toes as well. I think you know, the, the culture I learned was literally just one is the thumb, two is you know, the index finger as well as the thumb. Um, and, and in that, you know, that sort of varies across Europe even. So, so you know, the, there are lots of, there's lots of diversity in it. Accounting, you know, the business side of numbers associated with like, you know, trade and trade and business. You talk about the centrality. I was surprised to discover the centrality of accounting to the (laughs) French Revolution. Although anybody, (laughs) anybody that's seen Hamilton will be familiar with the uh, the American Revolution. But um, yeah, tell us about the, the the centrality of accounting to the French Revolution. It's, I mean, it was a surprise to me as well, Neil. Um, and and actually, uh, I I ended up sort of delving into the history of accounting, which wasn't my plan at all when I started out writing this book. Uh, but the um, the people who are historians of accounting were really really grateful that anyone was interested in what they had to say. So so they were very helpful in kind of laying it all out for me. But with the French Revolution, um, what happened is that the the French finance minister was an accountant named Jacques. Necker and he uh, he sort of tried to hold the royal court to account. Uh, he he made really good double entry bookkeeping accounts of of the French sort of royal court spending uh, and and highlighted how profligate they were being. Um, obviously, he lost his job uh, because that's what happens if you start whistleblowing on the establishment. Uh, but he w- he became a hero of the people who were sort of starting up the the revolution. So they ended up carrying a bust on their shoulders of Jacques Necker. All 
the way to the Bastille when they stormed it, which I just thought was fantastic. You know, the idea that an accountant can be so revolutionary, but actually, you know, this it sort of shows you how central numbers are to our existence and our, you know, and our certainly in our our way of living in the West. You know, numbers are it can't be done without numbers. But just one more thing on sort of basic arithmetic before we move on to some of the more sort of complex concepts and we talked about this controversy about whether we you know invented or discovered numbers in the first Mm. place but something that seems obvious now that didn't come along until you know quite a long time into the history of of using numbers was both the idea of negative numbers and the very concept of zero itself yeah, I mean, it, it sort of it does seem obvious now, and, I, and it re- really makes me wonder. You know, we sort of give these things to sort of you know six year olds. Six year olds cope with the idea of zero now, uh, and it's just sort of an accepted part of the world we live in. But it was really hard fought and hard won to get the idea of zero taken up. Um, negative numbers kind of came first because they were useful in manipulating debts and, and understanding trade. Uh, Chinese and Indian mathematicians, and or I shouldn't say mathematicians really, because they were just you know people. Do- doing uh, business accounting, uh, they used negative numbers sort of thousands of years before they were accepted in, in Western civilizations. But zero took even longer because people were sort of suspicious about zero. You know, what is it that, you know, this thing that is nothing, and surely something can't be nothing. And you can't say that, you know, one is the same as a zero. You know, how, how are they, you know, if you divide by zero, you get infinity, it doesn't really work. You divide by one, you get the number you started with. So the maths of zero is different. And people were just really kind of wary of it, partly because as well, it came from um, the East, it came from uh, the Arabian, uh, Arabic mathematicians, it was sort of seen as, you know, one person called it dangerous Saracen magic, to kind of deal with the number zero and have it in there. And you didn't need it sort of in, you know, if you're using Roman numerals, you just don't bother with it. Uh, but as soon as you're using these Hindu Arabic or Indian Arabic numerals, uh, then you, you actually can sort of put zero in there along with you know, one to nine. And if you've got positional notation, so, you know, where the digit lies within the number makes a difference to its value, it's a 10 or it's a unit or it's a hundred, then all of a sudden zero becomes this really, really important thing to have. And then, you know, arithmetic actually becomes much easier as well. It's much easier to do arithmetic with uh, the Indo-Arabic numerals with zero than it is to do it with Roman numerals. Let's move on to geometry, something that, you know, eventually would take discoverers around the world yeah Um, but it has also something that has rather sort of like spooky mysterious beginnings yeah i mean it's interesting because you know a lot of our culture goes back and harks back to the ancient greeks as being the ones who sort of originate all these things and they were certainly quite sort of mystical about shapes you know about the dodecahedron and and the the importance of it you know and uh, i think it was plato sort of said you know this is what god used to arrange the cosmos you know according to the shape of the dodecahedron and the triangle was you know had these sort of strange properties the circle of course we still think of as quite a mystical object in some ways you know we have it as you know we think of the the mandala you know and and it would sort of give the circle some kind of you know mystical properties and then you know we get all mystical about the nature of pi you know the ratio of the circumference to the diameter and so we we have all this kind of interesting sort of hangovers left over from you know the the original sort of ideas about how the cosmos was made up of these sort of platonic ideal shapes and and uh, and we still have them today a bit i think um but actually you know sometimes a shape is just a shape you know it's just you know if you've got three lines arranged in a certain way you're going to have a triangle you know you don't need to read it too much into it 
So let's talk first of all about the role of geometry in navigation. <laughs> so um, it, it's an incredible thing to sort of realise that that people were sailing around the Mediterranean in the 13th and 14th centuries, and they were all using things that we learned at school but never really had any use for at all, which is sines and cosines. So this is the ratios of the sides of the right angle triangle, right? So so you know we learned right angle triangles at school. We learned Pythagoras's theorem, although I should say you know it was known well before Pythagoras was uh, around. And yet these sailors, who were kind of uneducated, didn't really have any sort of formal training at all, would use sines and cosines to work out their course, to work out how far off their course they'd gone. Uh, they do sort of multiplications that are arithmetic with sines and cosines in order to get themselves back on track. And for us, you know, I, I very much doubt whether you've used sines and cosines since you left school. And you know, I might have a little bit, but not in living memory. It's sort of interesting that, that you know, at a certain point in history, these were absolutely central to it and people would go back to school in sailors and pirates even would go back to school to these places called sailing schools there was one in Dieppe in northern France run by a guy called Guillaume Denis and and he said you know navigation is nothing more than a right angle triangle you know this is this is all you need to know is encapsulated in these things and uh, and then you know th- that would enable them in Columbus's case to sail all the way across the Atlantic you know and and uh, discover and and pillage the Americas and also tell us something about geometry's role in creating art. So it's a really interesting thing that once you sort of understand geometry, you start to map out, you know, what optics might be. So how light travels from the eye to an object or to the eye from an object. People didn't really know which it was. But you start to sort of map these things out using triangles and, and, and um, understanding the ratios of similar triangles and things like that. And then you can start to use all that information as well to create lenses and mirrors. Uh, so And it helps you to create perspective. So, so the origins of perspective, really, as perspective drawing, come in from people who understood geometry and they understood how to draw the triangles about how the light from various things is reaching the eye. And there's this great woodcut um i've got a picture of it in the book uh, by albert durer where he he has this woodcut of people um using strings to represent the light coming from a lute and they're, they're trying to these two men in the picture are trying to draw a lute and they're trying to get all the perspective right and it's got this curved body and they're using these threads that they tie to the body of the lute and they the threads go all the way to the picture frame that they're going to you know make their their picture in to show them exactly which bit of the lute should be represented where on this 2d screen and uh interestingly i talked to some game uh, game designers uh, video game designers about this and they said this is basically Basically what they do now as they're designing games they, they quite often have to think about you know where a ray of light is originating where it's coming from uh, and, and where it's going to and how that should look on the you know as, as you represent uh, these these sort of um, characters and as you represent these scenes and this sort of very sort of basic and essential understanding of geometry is what gave us this radical shift in Renaissance art, where suddenly everybody's able to draw real, you know, or paint really realistic scenes with perspective, uh, you know, and the, the vanishing point in the distance and all that kind of stuff. And sort of, you know, it, it just came through from understanding of optics and, uh, and the way that, that light travels um, and, you know, coupled together with an understanding of, of triangles and, and spheres and spherical surfaces. So it's really, really sort of interesting and complex interplay between science and art. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. 
Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Michael Brooks and we're talking about his new book, The Art of More, How Mathematics Created Civilization. And yeah, Michael, you had me bang to rights there when you said, I'm sure you haven't used geometry (laughs) since you left school. And something else, um, which we're going to talk about next again, which now seems to me just as, you know, mysterious as the origins of the thing itself, which is algebra, Um, which again, I, you know, I am absolutely the person you're talking about in the introduction of this book. Somebody who anything they learned at school has basically fallen back down to like basic, um, basic mental arithmetic for like small numbers up, maybe a bit of division, maybe a bit of a multiplication, (laughs) but you know, beyond that, we have a calculator. So, um, but let's say, um, let's talk about the uh, the sort of origins of of algebra it's right there in its name <laughs> yeah so it, it comes from a book that has the word algebra in the in the title uh, and it's basically a compendium of calculating books um and uh, and it's basically a book on how to sort of put together all the calculations you might need for sort of daily life so so some of it is about you know how you calculate inheritance uh some of it is about tax calculations and um and people have been using algebra for thousands of years so the ancient babylonians invented algebra in order to be able to properly divide up fields and and do surveying and work out how much tax people would owe from the fields that they were working and things like that so there's really sort of interesting start of life to this subject that we we think of as kind of abstract it doesn't really help us in our daily life as you as you say you know nobody's solving quadratic equations on a daily basis but you learn to do it at school and the interesting thing is you don't really know why you learn to do it at school apart from to pass an exam but for you know a babylonian civil servant that formula that you know we 
these, you know, most of us or some of us can recite, you know, x equals minus b plus or minus the square root of b squared minus 4ac all over 2a. That comes from a Babylonian tax calculating tool. So it was, you know, incredibly useful. And then it became, you know, by the time we got to get to the Renaissance in, in Italy in particular, uh, you get these sort of people who can manipulate these algebraic equations that involve x squared or x cubed. And once you can do that, you got, you know, you had a job for life effectively, either as a teacher of algebra, because it was so impressive to be able to do this, or as a financier or an assistant to a financier, because this was how you calculate interest on loans. And this is how you calculated, you know, how much you were willing to lend and what would be a, a reasonable risk. So you became a really useful sort of part of the financial establishment. In fact, you know, it's exactly the same today. If you can solve uh, different types of equations and you'll get, you know, hoovered up by the city of London uh, as, a, as, as somebody who's essential to the, the financial markets. So algebra has this sort of history of being used really, you know, by civil servants, by um, people who, who are doing the sort of basic day to day calculations. And, you know, and then it's employed in all kinds of other ways now, of course. And, and we, you know, and engineering and architecture and everything else, you know, it has to involve doing some of these algebraic things. But it really started as a very sort of practical, just sort of, you know, working out the basics of, of taxation kind of tool. Um, I wanted to you to tell us the story of, of, of a particular example, a sort of surprising example, maybe of the of the use of algebra, and that's in the design of the Ford Taurus. <laughs> yeah, um, so, so the interesting thing about that is that it was actually a sort of revolution for American cars. So it already kind of happened in Europe that cars have become more curvy through the understanding of algebra and how you create something called the Bezier curve, which is effectively a way of sort of plotting straight lines um, and, and it's a shame we're kind of an entirely audio <laughs> medium here because you, you kind of need to see the visuals of it. But you can plot straight lines that move around so that actually they trace out a curve, you know, in the way where they meet. And this, I remember this from the 1970s kind of pin art. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, if people, yeah. like, if people can't picture it, they might remember those, yeah, those sort of, yeah. you get where you would tie string between, uh, between pins. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I feel like we're showing our age here a bit, but um, <laughs> <laughs> never mind. Uh, yeah, let's think of it as retro. Uh, but you can you can um, sort of write write equations basically for these lines and these curves. And what Bezier did, uh, and working with another designer from Renault, was that they showed that you know you could use this algebra of these curves to basically build any curve that you wanted, and then program it into the machinery for for producing the curved body panel of your car. And uh, this was basically taken uh, by uh, an executive from Ford who had been working in Europe in charge of producing more aerodynamic cars. And um, and he he basically imported this you know, this French invention of uh, of the Bezier curve, and it became a kind of standard way of producing more curvy cars, which were more aerodynamic, which was necessary because basically the price of oil was rising at this point in history. And so the Ford Taurus becomes this incredibly sort of iconic new car in America because it's got curves and everything before it had been boxy. And uh, and it's the car that Paul Verhoeven made um, the, the car in Robocop. You know, because it kind of looked futuristic, even though it was already sort of in production. So um, and it's, it's a, you know, just a really nice example of algebra sort of, you know, getting out of the sort of mathematics into popular culture. 
Um, I'm going to leap a, a couple of chapters and go to the rather misnamed imaginary numbers. What are they? <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. I mean, it's appalling that they're misnamed. They're named imaginary numbers because all numbers are imaginary. You know, you have never seen a two. You've seen two of something. Um, so, so numbers are just a concept that we're so used to now that we, we, you know, we sort of think of them as a real thing, but they're not. Uh, so the numbers that we normally deal with are real numbers, right? But actually, you can have different sets of these numbers, if you like. And imaginary numbers are a really useful thing. And you might not have thought that at school if you learned about them at school, and they seemed ridiculous. But they are the answer to the question, what is the square root of minus one? And you can't have the square root of a negative number, because if I say two times two, you say four. If I say minus two times minus two, you say four. So the square root is the reverse process of that. So if you start with a negative number, there's sort of you think there's no way to get that. But there was a guy called Jerome Cardano who who saw that actually when you were solving quadratic equations, and this is in the 16th century, he said, you know, I get to a point in my calculation where I've got this square root of a negative number. You know, it's absurd, it's weird, but it seems to be real. And then this was taken on uh, over subsequently, really over the next couple of hundred years, and and people started to say, well, you know, let's treat this as if it's a normal number, but just somehow different and we'll treat it as sort of you know as if we've got apples are the normal numbers and pairs are the imaginary numbers and we can work with apples and pairs together we just mustn't mix them up and and so we started working with imaginary numbers and then they became incredibly useful um you know really the point at which they just changed the world i would argue is at the end of the 19th century after the invention of electricity when uh, electrical engineers were really struggling to understand how to do really really complicated uh, mathematical equation solving to sort of describe their electrical circuits and they had all these sines and cosines and and it was an incredible mess of stuff in order to be able to describe how the currents and the voltages would vary in their in their circuits depending on all the components they had in it and stuff and really you know this is the stage before anyone had electrified you know, any cities or towns you know you had generators and you had electrical apparatus to a certain degree but you didn't have the two together and they weren't always connected because of this difficulty it was really hard to work out how to do it and then um a guy called charles uh, proteus steinmetz came in and he said actually you can convert from all these sines and cosines into there's a way of representing them as just imaginary numbers and you take all the complex arithmetic out of the whole thing and then you've just got two sets of numbers that you're working with and as long as you don't mix up the real and imaginary numbers then these calculations become really easy and so once he introduced the concept of imaginary numbers into sort of electrical engineering people just jumped on it and it was like it just became really easy to design all these circuits and all these sort of bits of equipment that turned out to be absolutely revolutionary this is how we electrified initially you know american cities Uh, this is how tesla and edison you know were able to kind of you know put the infrastructure together for this this sort of new age of electricity and it's really you know gone from strength to strength ever since you know it was behind i think i mentioned in the book um, behind the you know the hewlett-packard company was built on imaginary numbers and then you know that uh, you know one of the people that they gave an internship to was a guy called steve jobs so you have this you know whole thing you know apple is born out of effectively you know the the line of imaginary numbers all of maths unfairly perhaps has a bad reputation with the public and and one area of it which is maybe particularly 
even worse is statistics but why should we love statistics i have to confess that i didn't love statistics um <laughs> even when i started writing this chapter in fact i was i went into it with a heavy heart i mean it, statistics is so important because we're so easily fooled by numbers aren't we we, we sort of see things and we think we have understood you know how this thing's going to work out or you know we, we look at things and we, we don't understand the subtleties so you know it's very difficult for us to do things like test you know, does this medicine work, you know, without understanding, you know, the subtle properties of numbers and how we see patterns where there aren't patterns, or sometimes we don't see patterns where there are patterns. And statistics is all about sort of finding ways to sort of represent numbers in a way that our minds, that makes them useful to our minds. Well, that's sort of how I'm thinking about it. So, uh, you know, my central thing is that our, our minds don't naturally deal with numbers. And statistics, I think, is a really good example of a mathematical discipline that takes that on and says, okay, so let's find a way in which our minds can deal with numbers. And so you have things like Florence Nightingale working out, you know, in the Crimean War that she could represent, you know, nobody would listen to or understand the statistics if she just presented them as numbers. Uh, on on you know the number of uh, soldiers who were dying in field hospitals, but she so she found that you know she could represent them with statistical graphs that a bit like a pie chart that we we see now. Um, and then you get people who who develop statistical tests for saying um, you know is this barley really good for making Guinness or is this other barley much better for making Guinness? You know how can I work this out? You know and and actually that's how we got a thing called the student T test, which uh, anyone who did science at university will have come across. And that was an invention in order to create a standardized pint of Guinness, which I think is a very good use of mathematics. And so we have this way of controlling, manipulating and understanding and representing the numbers that helps us get to grips with things in the real world. And that's what statistics is all about. And I think it's sort of, in some ways, it can be quite dry and it's quite difficult and abstract, but it's incredibly powerful and incredibly important. And I don't think we learn enough of it when we're just at school, really. And to finish it off then, um, I just wanted to talk about an area of mathematics that's fundamentally behind the modern world, behind computing and the internet, etc., which is information theory. And we could fundamentally describe this as being just about two numbers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so th- this is about zero and one, isn't it? And it's sort of, it's funny how embedded in our, in our culture this is. Everyone knows that zero and one is sort of binary and it's to do with electronics and representations of information passing through, you know, down the, you know, through optical fibres. The internet is, is composed of zeros and ones and we, we have all this stuff. And, uh, and it's a really interesting thing that we're so sort of au fait with that. So you have things like the matrix, you know, all those graphics in the matrix and you have these tumbling piles of numbers and stuff like this. And, and, numbers are behind everything you know they're behind you and me talking right now you know with information theory and how you encode a signal like me talking you know into a microphone how that's sent through wires what's the most efficient way to route it you know if i wanted to have secret communications how do i encrypt it and that's all sort of part of information theory and of course now our online shopping transactions all have to be encrypted and and that was basically done by a guy called claude shannon in at the end of the 1920s beginning of the 1930s 
1970s. Um, he kind of laid out this theory. He wrote a paper called A Theory of Information, which about a year later was reissued as The Theory of Information because it was so damn good. And um, essentially, it was all sort of written down there about how to deal with binary um, and, and, uh, and just an extraordinary kind of achievement by this a single man, really. I mean, you know, mo- most of it was done by Claude Shannon on his own. And then other people sort of picked up a bit of the slack and, and sort of filled in some of the gaps. It, you know, but information theory is something that we, we kind of don't know anything about. And, I, and maybe we don't need to. I don't know. It's certainly not on school curricula. Uh, and I kind of felt a little bit guilty sneaking it into the book. But I thought it was so interesting that, that you know, our modern world and our experience now in the 21st century was built by this one man, Claude Shannon. So I've been talking to Michael Brooks. We've been talking about his new book, The Art of More, How Mathematics Created Civilization," which is out in the UK from Scribe. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you for having me, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.